Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision making. My name is Phil McGee, and my guest today is Dan Sheehan, Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Gatton College of Business and Economics at the University of Kentucky. Dan and his colleagues recently published a paper to appear in the Journal of Consumer Research titled In-Store Spending Dynamics, How Budgets Invert Relative Spending Patterns. It's a fascinating look at how shoppers make spending decisions as they go about their grocery shopping trips and challenges the notion that shoppers' relative spending, and I'll let Dan define exactly what that means, does not follow a linear pattern. In other words, shoppers make different spending decisions at different points in their shopping trip and in very predictable ways. The implications of their work is far-reaching, and we'll get into that as well. But for now, Dan, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks. And um, you know, to build out on my introduction a little bit, Dan, just uh, take a moment, if you wouldn't mind, and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay, sure. Well, as you said, I'm an assistant professor here at the University of Kentucky at the Gatton School of Business and Economics. I've been here for about three years. Before that, I was at Georgia Tech finishing up my PhD down there. And before that, I worked in industry for about 10 years in various Fortune 500 companies, um, primarily with sales and a revenue uh, an analysis role. Um, but that really drove me to academic research in the sense that we're studying the same problems, but looking at it from a more holistic standpoint where hopefully we can make a difference in many industries as opposed to just one or just for one company. Oh, so that's interesting. So you um, actually have the unique perspective of having been uh, a practitioner and now an academic. Correct. Yeah, very cool. Um, hey, I also understand you are a, uh, a marathon runner. Is that, is, is that true? That is true. It's something, uh, it's, I guess it's one of my hidden passions. It keeps me a little bit sane to get out there and just hit the road for a couple days a week. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, I understand that it was by running marathons that, that inspired this paper. Yeah, it really did. So the interesting thing about marathons, Phil, I understand you've run one or two before, right? Uh, yes. So the interesting thing about marathons is basically that we look at this total time, like a lot of people when they're done with a marathon, it's, hey, what was your total time? Did you get under four? Did you get under five? Whatever it could be. But what, what really sort of struck me when I ran my first marathon is that maybe it's a better perspective to look actually on how people's splits were or how fast did they run at the beginning, the middle, the end. And if we try to sort of relate that to spending, we might be able to make some conclusions off of it. So just to give you an example of my first marathon, I was living in Georgia at the time and I was running a little late to get down to the start. And I remember my wife dropped me off as close as she could to the race. And I really just jumped in the, the stall as, as, or as close as I could to the starting line and then ended up starting with these group of, I guess, quote unquote ringers, which were really fast. And I didn't realize it for a few miles, just how fast I was going. And the time I noticed the clock that had my time there from the start time, I started to do a little math in my head and realized I'm running about two minutes faster than I wanted to run in the race. Mm. And being, being sort of a runner, being a little nervous about this being my first marathon, 
I was starting to wonder how this would affect my whole race. Would it, would it influence whether I could finish, how fast I'd be able to run the rest of the race? I sort of got in my head a little bit and had to regroup, but it really made me wonder, instead of looking at just my total time, maybe I need to look at, okay, I have to calm myself down a little bit. I have to run a little bit slower here, run a little bit faster here. And relating it to some of the work I was doing at the same time while I was getting my PhD, I started to realize that maybe looking at aggregate spending totals isn't the best way to study people's individual spending decisions. Hmm. It would be better to study each individual decision and see how they related. So if somebody came out too fast or spent a little bit too much money at the beginning of the trip, does that influence how they start to spend money later on? Or vice versa, maybe they're a little bit cautious at first because they're worried about spending too much money. Does that influence the money they might spend in the middle or the end of the shopping trip? So that's really how I got the idea for this paper based on my first marathon. Interesting. Yeah, so the so the kind of the orientation toward decision-making um, is different as people go about their shopping trip. Yeah, and it's definitely sort of framed a lot of my research that it. I don't really like looking at decisions in a vacuum. Everything we do is sort of a result of what we've done previously or what we might do in the future. And this sort of seemed like a great context to look at how 20 decisions in a grocery trip sort of evolve that same way. Um, by the way, for you know all the marathon runner listeners out there, you know we're all too familiar with that nightmare you have when you're you're late for that that race you've been preparing for for six months. Um, it's <laughs> it just, you know, funny that it, it actually was a true thing for you. And, um, and somehow you turn that experience into a really, really cool uh, research project. Uh, curious, curious how this, I mean, why, why grocery shopping spending? How, how did, uh, how did, you know, your experience running the marathon actually relate to that? I, I understand the, the, you know, the analogy, but, um, but, but do you have a passion for understanding shopping spending? Well, I, I have a passion for consumer psychology. I mean, I, I, I probably as most of your listeners are the same way. I mean, it's pretty cool to try to figure out why people do what they do. And the more we can understand that and try to apply that insights, hopefully we can help them make better decisions and maybe help man managers or retailers or manufacturers make slightly better decisions that we could reach consumers in, in their mode in the right, the right way each time. Okay. Um, that's, that's cool. And then, um, so, so give us, I, I know you kind of already did, um, in, in talking about your marathon experience, but, but focusing on this paper now, what did you learn? Give, give us a high level. We're going to climb into a lot of the details, but, but at a very high level, how would you describe what you learned? Yeah. So the biggest thing I learned is basically how people come into shopping trips and how that sort of changes once they start making decisions and how they can sort of how that changes maybe a couple different times in a shopping trip. So in this paper, we really tried to contrast two different groups where we looked at budget shoppers versus non-budget shoppers. I know that might be an overly overgeneralization of these two different categories, but it really just has to do with how concerned are you about your spending and how or how unconcerned are you about the spending. Budget shoppers are typically consumers that are fairly concerned about how much they're spending, even go to the point to state explicitly how much money they allocate for each single shopping trip. Where non-budget shoppers is sort of what we think about for these shoppers that just sort of go into a store. Maybe they have a list, but probably not. More typically, they're just shopping for what they need, making decisions on the fly. And so throughout the paper, you talk about, um, you know, these, these sequential decisions and, and their impact on relative spending. Uh, define for us what you mean by relative spending. 
Okay. Well, one of the great things about studying this in a grocery shopping domain is people make a bunch of different purchases. But one of the issues with all these different purchases is that they're all a little bit different. So you can imagine buying a $10 bottle of laundry detergent might be a little bit different than buying a 79 cent banana. So we had to figure out some way that we could compare that purchase of bananas to that purchase of laundry detergent. And also because we are driven to try to make insight or try to sort of create understanding that is useful to both consumers and retailers, we thought this might be a more actionable for both consumers and retailers as they can just simply look at spending a little bit more in a category versus spending a little bit less in a category. So an example of relative spending in, in the cola category could be if you purchased a, a name brand bottle of Coca-Cola versus a store brand bottle of cola, one would be much higher in relative spending, the Coca-Cola, and the store brand, brand would be much lower in their spending. Got it. Okay. And then just, just to clarify, we're talking specifically about shopping 10 or more items in a grocery store, correct? Correct. Yeah. So one, as you can imagine, there's lots of different types of shopping trips and lots of different types of shoppers. In this situation, we really focused on people that made more than 10 shopping decisions just to allow these dynamics to occur. If people were making what we would call a fill-in shopping trip, they might not even really be that concerned about their first or second purchase. Their goals might be a little bit different. In a, but in these major shopping trips of 10 items or more, they tend to go through these stages a little bit more predictably. Okay, got it. All right, so we now know that people make decisions differently um, during the course of their trip, and, and the way they make those decisions differs depending on whether they are uh, what we'll call a budget or a non-budget shoppers. Um, so tell us how does that differ between those two groups? Okay, well, let's break it down by each group separately. Okay. So let's take a budget shopper that comes into a shopping trip with a, uh, let's, uh, for an even number, let's just say a $100 budget. And the thing that's unique about budget shoppers, though, is they usually have their budget set originally or before they enter the store. And so their sort of sensitivity to spending or their worry about spending money is there from the get-go. So once they come into the trip, that first decision, they're a little bit nervous about it. And so they tend to control their spending at the beginning of the shopping trip. There's actually been some past projects that we've worked on with budget shoppers where we show that budget shoppers do this sort of suboptimally. They almost overly under or they almost, they underspend too strategically because they're so worried about exceeding their budget that they're really biased to underspend at the beginning of the shopping trip. Mm, okay. So they come in, they spend relatively little in each product, so they're buying all the store brands, for instance, trying to buy the cheapest things they can, but still getting everything on their shopping list. Yet, after they've bought a few items, they start to realize that they have been overspending. They start to see that they have all this much, or all this money left in their car or in their budget, and so they actually start to lessen up on their constraints a little bit. They start to free themselves to buy more expensive products, maybe splurge on something here or there, and actually increase the amount they spend in each decision. But yet, as they get closer to the end of the shopping trip, as they start to sort of see all those items piling up in their cart, they start to think that, oh, man, I'm still a little nervous if I have enough money for everything. So they grow worried again about their spending and reduce their spending in, in turn. Now, so that's budget shoppers. 
different non-budget shoppers, they do the exact opposite. So you might think of your average non-budget shopper coming into the shopping store without a thought or a concern in their mind about how much money they're going to spend. So they begin to sort of make purchases, not even really looking at the prices. They might be just like, oh, I want that organic product or, hey, this is my favorite brand. I'm going to get that. It's sort of based on some research in the past that has shown that people sort of neglect or, or completely just not pay attention to opportunity cost when they make decisions, that they're more focused on other variables and the price of a product just isn't as salient as it should be on a lot of everyday products. But then as they make or as they make these decisions and they start to spend money, maybe it's seeing all these products piling up in their cart, they start to feel like they are spending too much money. So by the time they're halfway through the shopping st uh, or through the grocery store, they start to realize that they're spending a decent amount of money and want to react to that by spending a little bit less. Hmm. They, they sort of feel bad about all the money they're spending, so they reduce their spending. Yet, as they get to the end of the shopping trip, they also sort of start to realize that each individual decision doesn't impact their total spending like the first couple uh, decisions did. Basically, it's almost like looking at your shopping cart, and even though you're adding some small items to your shopping cart, it doesn't change perceptually just how many items are in your shopping cart. It goes from like, hey, I've bought a lot of items to, oh, what's one or two more really going to do to me? And so then they open up this sort of, they start to feel a little bit less bad about their spending and free themselves to spend a little bit more money towards the end of the shopping trip. Mm. So, um, so the pattern that you saw is that shoppers that have a planned budget, and I'll just use the planned budget uh, group, uh, when shopping are more likely to buy more expensive items in the middle of their trip than at the beginning or the end of the trip. And, and then, of course, vice versa for shoppers that don't have a planned budget. Good sure. so far? Yeah, correct. Okay. And this is attributed to the degree which they experience, um, which you talk a lot about in the paper, the pain of paying which is driven by their attention to price and opportunity costs, which fluctuate throughout the trip. Is that right? Yeah, it's a mouthful, but yes, that is correct. <laughs> okay, so why would price salience and opportunity costs change as shoppers go about their trip? So as we talk about in the paper, it's really about this relationship between spending money, how we feel about the money we spend, and then additional spending. So price salience is just sort of how much we're paying attention to the prices of the products that we're looking at and buying. So the, the big thing to think about is opportunity costs. And it's not the actual opportunity cost, so that difference between the dollar bottle of Coke and the $2 or the dollar bottle of store brand cola and the $2 bottle of Coca-Cola. It's more about how that feels to one person. And so as we spend money for this non-budget shopper, they don't feel that bad about spending money at first. It's not that concerning to spend too much money. But once they, or it's not that concerning to spend relatively more money. But once they start to make more purchases and once they see that or start to think about their total spending increasing, all of a sudden they become more mindful and maybe a purchase that they would have made differently as the first purchase, they start to be a little bit more worried about their spending with it. So if they would have purchased Coca-Cola or frozen pizza right when they entered the store, they might always get the, the high dollar premium option. Mm -hmm. But if they're buying that in the middle of the store, they're going to start to be like, wow, I've already spent a lot of money. Maybe I should reduce or maybe I should buy something that's on sale or buy a value option there to try to regulate this a little bit. So, so, so there's, um, there's an important relationship between opportunity cost, uh, the pain of paying, 
their price salience and relative spending. And that's, that's for all shoppers. So, so if I'm, if I'm a shopper and I'm thinking of opportunity costs, um, then my pain of paying goes up. And when my pain of paying goes up, my price salience also goes up. Mm-hmm. And when my price salience goes up, my relative spending goes down. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just that when and how this plays out depends on whether I'm shopping with or without a budget. Yeah, correct. You said both shoppers have that same relationship that like if spending doesn't hurt, we focus less on the prices of product and we'll probably spend more money. If spending money does hurt, we focus more on the prices of the products and we probably spend less money in turn. Got it. And so the key difference, as I understand it, between the budget and non-budget shopper um, effect, if you will, is um, in the paper, you talk about the budget and non-budget shoppers having different reference points from which their opportunity costs are evaluated. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yeah, with, uh, it, this all sort of comes back to some old work about prospect theory that we evaluate whether things are good or bad according to some reference point. And so budget shoppers, their reference point is their budget. So if we go back to that example of a $100 budget, they start to evaluate things against that budget. So even when they've bought 30 to $40 worth of items, they might still realize that, wow, I still have $60 left to spend. And that makes them feel a little bit more comfortable to where they can increase their spending a little bit. Mm-hmm. As they get down to the point where they only have 10 or $12 left to spend, they might be a little nervous of, hey, what do I still have left to get? I don't know if I'll have enough money. So they reduce and really constrict their spending towards the end of the shopping trip. But for non-budget shoppers, it's the exact opposite pattern where a non-budget shopper really isn't concerned about their spending when they start the shopping trip. But when they start to get concerned of their spending, they always compare it to sort of not spending anything at all. So if I'm starting to stress about how much money I've spent on the first 12 or 15 items I've bought, I'm going to compare that to just a, a zero reference point. So every additional dollar I spend is a little bit more painful. It starts to feel a little bit bad. Mm. I don't have that wealth effect that a budget shopper might have. Interesting. Interesting. Just out of curiosity, what um, what was the breakdown in terms of percentage of shoppers uh, that have a budget versus those that don't? Um, in other words, like which group do we really need to cater to? Budget shoppers or non-budget shoppers? That's a good point. I will say in most of our studies, in all of well, in all of our studies, we manipulated this factor. Um, in the last study that was a field study where we had actual people with, who set their own budget, we did find that more people enter stores without a budget than have a budget. Some other research would say, I think, that about 30% of people have an explicit budget before they go grocery shopping. But in in all of our studies, we manipulated that factor in the sense that we tried to have even amounts of budget shoppers and non-budget shoppers in every study. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Did I hear that right? 30% um, do have an explicit budget? Yeah, that's what I've seen from some other work. And it's important to note that even people that don't have an explicit budget, we might be able to do things to make that more explicit by having them remember the last time they went shopping, how much they spent, have different cues in stores. It's it's probably not that difficult for a marketer to think about how they could sort of cue a budget to consumers. But for the sake of our studies, everybody had a budget or non-budget shopper that we assigned. Yeah, interesting. And, and I'm going to touch on queuing people to a budget um, in, in a minute. But uh, but I first, I'm, I want to, um, I, I, I read your paper three times. Um, it was very clear and, and again, very fascinating. But um, 
but I had to read it three times because I wanted to make sure that I really grasped it because it okay. talks about the you know concave versus convex uh, patterns of the budget versus non-budget spenders, and and you you did five studies in order to you know make sure that you really pursued this research question from from many different angles. You broke it down to its components. And, and I love the way you approached it, and, and it was really, really convincing. But, um, but I'm going to put this in very simple terms to make, to make sure that we've all got this, because um, for me, at least, it was a little bit confusing. Okay. Um, so let, let's say I'm going shopping, and, and I have a budget of um, $100. So, okay. so I'm a budget shopper. As soon as I start putting things in my cart, I immediately feel the pain of paying because I, I'm sensitive to my $100 budget, and I, I don't want to exceed that. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm more likely to buy less expensive options at first when I, when I first begin my trip. Mm-hmm. Then as I go about my shopping, I, I realize, um, I guess through some feedback mechanism, that I'm still within my budget. So, so I relax a bit and I become less price salient, meaning now I might buy more expensive options. But then as I get to the end of my shopping trip, I see my cart getting full and my mind starts thinking about heading to the checkout. Um, so I'm, I'm now reminded that I only have my hundred dollar budget to spend. So, so now I'm, I'm starting to pay more attention to price. And so now I buy the less expensive options again. Um, do, do I have that right? Yeah, no, that's pretty much right for budget shoppers. And I like how you said through some sort of feedback loop, because we actually do manipulate that in the paper in one study where we give people real time feedback, where it's sort of a, a iPad mounted on a shopping cart that shows people exactly how much they're spending or how much um, how much the items in their cart are worth. But there is other more implicit types of feedback, just how many items are in your cart. Are you halfway through the store or three quarters of the way store through the store that we found that people seem to use and we get these same effects, though it is always a little bit stronger. These, as you said, concave and convex shapes seem to be a little bit stronger when we give people that explicit spending feedback. Yeah. Um, by, by the way, um, apologies for the tangent, but I loved how in one of your five stu- um uh, studies, the penalty for exceeding their budget for for the budget shoppers was to do three bit three digit math problems. <laughs> Which well, you like that because I don't know if the reviewers like that at first. <laughs> I was wondering, is that more effective than holding people's arms in ice water? So yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different things you could do. It's funny how some people hate math problems. So having to do, and you should see these math problems. They were literally like add 111 plus 224. I mean, they're not the most difficult math problems, but the threat of math problems, especially for an undergraduate, seems to be like the the worst thing in the world to to just tell them that if they overspend, they're going to have to do these math problems. It, it's it makes it a binding consequential budget. Wow. I mean, as a parent, I'm thinking, what a, what a great way to, you know, make sure the kids do their chores. <laughs> um, okay. So, so, so that was clear on the budget choppers. Now, now let's turn to um, the non-budget choppers. Okay. So, so now if I don't have a budget, um, you're saying I don't feel the pain of paying when I first start shopping because I don't really have a budget that uh, restricts me. So I might now buy the more expensive items in the beginning of my trip. Um, as I progress in, more toward the middle of my trip, I now start thinking about the opportunity cost of my decisions, and now I'm more price sensitive. Um, I don't have a budget, but I do have a reference point, which, as you said before, is, is $0. So the further my cart gets from $0, um, the more that pain of paying 
increases. So, so, so now as I'm filling out my cart, I start thinking about the opportunity cost of my spending, which makes me more prone to buying the less expensive things kind of in the middle part of my trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you said before, which is the complete opposite of the budget shoppers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then as I near the end of my trip, I again favor the more expensive items. Um, and, and here's where I have a question. I, I, I didn't quite get the rationale for why non-budget shoppers at the end of the trip will now favor the more expensive items. Okay, so I, I think I understand what you're saying. Or I guess there's two sort of points I want to point out. Um, your description was correct, but there is like an important part to note how our sensitivity to losses sort of diminishes as it gets farther away from a reference point. Okay. So that's one of the reasons that the non-budget shoppers flip back to buying expensive items. So you could try to think about it as how difficult would it to be to spend that $10 on a bottle of laundry detergent. At the beginning of the trip, if you've only spent $10, an additional spend, an additional $10 might feel painful. It might be aversive. You might be like, oh, man, that's a lot of money. Hmm. You've already spent $80. That additional $10 doesn't seem as bad. So it's still a loss. It's still something that we want to stay away from, but it doesn't become as painful. So when we start to think about opportunity costs, that's really this perception of how, how, how much pain or how aversive it would feel to spend $10 on laundry detergent versus $6 on laundry detergent. At, at late points in the shopping trip, it just doesn't feel as aversive because it doesn't seem like it's as big as a or play as a big as a role in their total spending as it would have if they've spent less money earlier in the shopping trip. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. So, um, okay, good. So, all right. So now that we know all this, what are some of the implications of this sequential decision-making patterns uh, for marketers? Um, in, in other words, if you were a consumer packaged goods marketer, what might you do to appeal to these dynamic mindsets? So I think there's a lot of different things we could do, like not to go back to my marathon example from the beginning, but if we think about spending money as this resource allocation that people have, we're really trying to figure out when can we ask people to run faster or to slow down a little bit. And so there's different things we could do to either take advantage of the patterns that we're talking about here or things we could do to actually influence the patterns and move them one way or the other. So the first thing I can think about just taking advantage of the pattern is to think about how the stores are laid out. Like basically what this research says that if you think you have more budget shoppers in your store, you think you have more non-budget shoppers in your store, you might be able to strategically plan what products people will get to in the middle of their shopping trip versus the end of the shopping trip. Or to even think about how this could relate to shopping online when people start to transition some of their grocery shopping to to buying through a store's website and then going to pick up the grocery store, where we might have a more clear understanding of how many products they're going to buy based off a a pre-planned shopping list or things like that, that we can start to figure out maybe how we want to present things on the page to influence whether people are going to be more likely to buy a store brand or more likely to buy a premium brand or things like that. And obviously, you know, promotions are ways of um, easing the pain of paying and, and reducing opportunity costs. So promotions can be used to influence the, the way that a budget or non-budget shopper may approach, given, given their expected mindset, a category in the middle or at the beginning or the end of the trip. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. So promotions are pretty much one of the big factors that I think retailers could use to not just work with these current dynamics that are there, but actually shift these dynamics. Because even as a promotion, you could you could strategically offer promotions to people when they're most price sensitive. And that would probably increase their redemption. But promotions just by themselves are a decision that people have to make an opportunity cost about. Let's say you give me a, a dollar off of a, an item coupon and I choose not to use it or choose to use it. There is some opportunity cost in that that might speed up or slow down these patterns for different shoppers. Yeah, um, I, w- I was imagining. So I'll, if, if I'm a marketer and you know my my uh, shopper tends to be of, of a budget-minded shopper, and let's say my category is in the middle of the store. Um, I was wondering, like, can I reframe the opportunity costs? Um, and I hope this example isn't too abstract, but you know, I, I can do save a dollar on on my product, um, which will help lower the cost of pain, uh, but still relative to my competition may not be enough. Um, uh, versus doing something like you know buy my product and save a dollar on your total cart um so so you know kind of in theory that would shift the opportunity cost from when they're most sensitive to the pain of paying um you know by reducing the total basket so they're closer now to their zero dollar reference point um so the kind of thinking less about this item and more about my total spend um you know during the middle of their trip and i, and I was wondering if if doing kind of creative things like, you know, trying to get them to uh, perceive their opportunity costs as being different um, through different types of promotional tactics might be a good strategy. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a fascinating way to think about it, to think about how the you could frame the promotion off of whatever cost is most salient, whether it's the total basket cost or the, the relative difference between prices in each category. So that's definitely something that could be used to to influence these dynamics or to take advantage of them. Something I've always thought is that maybe you could try to shift when or how much of a promotion is necessary at different points in time. So a lot of the literature on promotion is pretty... Um, dive, or is pretty split on whether promotions are used just solely as a cue to remind you to purchase this product to draw attention to you. Mm-hmm. Magnitude influences how much people want a product versus not. And maybe this is a way that we could help manufacturers and retailers understand that they need to be a little bit heavier on a promotion at some point and lighter on a promotion at other points to truly get through to cu- customers. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant idea. Um, I, I, and I know, you know, I've done a previous episode with Jeff Inman of the University of Pittsburgh. I don't know if you know Jeff. Yeah, um, he was on the dissertation committee. <laughs> oh, is that right? Uh, a, a great guy. Uh, he's done, you know, extraordinary amount of shopper-related research. And he um, introduced, for, for, to me at least, the the concept of of slack spending. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, it, and so it, that really opened my my kind of purview about how people, you know, don't just kind of operate in a linear fashion. And there are, you know, opportunities um, or moments when people behave differently throughout the course of a shopping trip for a variety of reasons. And, and you're calling attention to another way in which that plays out. So I love this, this topic and, and how you thought about it and, and how you've now come up with a, a predictable way to think about it. From an application standpoint, you, you also mentioned in your paper that um, implicit budgets 
Um, this is actually pretty funny because this is a question that was building in my mind as I was reading the paper about you know people who have a kind of a declared budget, right, an explicit budget versus people who don't. And and actually thinking back to Jeff's paper, Jeff um, almost seemed to argue that everyone has a at least an implicit budget. But you said that um, people who have an implicit budget um, that doesn't that's not the same effect as uh, on their spending as having an explicit budget. Um, but if you were to remind shoppers that they are on a budget, um, say, uh, you know, by, by say they're walking to the store and they see this big sign on the window saying five cents per gallon on gas when you spend a hundred dollars or more on groceries. Now you've kind of just put them into, all right, I need to think about my total budget mode. Um, you can, in effect, shift them from non-budget spending patterns to budget spending patterns um, mm -hmm. if, if you wanted to, if you felt that was you know, to your advantage, um, because now their budget has shifted from implicit to explicit. Is, is, is that the right way of thinking about it? Yeah, that is the way. And yeah, and Jeff's work on uh, spending like the slack and budgetary slack sort of um, says things like that, which I think it's correct. I just caution to to jump from our research on explicit budgets to implicit budgets for a couple reasons. First, a lot of the studies that we did in the paper, we did have explicit budgets and we did include one study in the web appendix that had an implicit budget that we turned into an explicit budget sort of uh, similarly to how you say, we reminded people that this is what they typically spend in this, a similar shopping trip. Yes. But the important thing is to think about what is a similar shopping trip. So in all of our studies, we gave people shopping lists. We told them what they would buy. So it's not the same as you or me going to the store buying the same 20 products we typically buy. Because we have an idea of what that implicit budget is but in most of our studies people shouldn't have an idea of what that implicit budget is because they might not have the highest familiarity with the the 20 products that they're going to buy so it, it's a little bit different that way and the big difference that i'm not sure how the implicit budget and the explicit budget will work is that beginning part of the shopping trip so you might not come in as reserved with your spending if you just have an implicit budget, if you're not activating that sort of at the beginning and making that somewhat binding or consequential. So you can make an implicit budget binding or consequential if you, if you tie it to some sort of penalty for overspending. But if sometimes if you're just cueing people about the or about the budget towards the end of the shopping trip, you might just get that last half of the dynamic where people might reduce their spending towards the end, but they might not be that concerned with overspending because it might not hurt them to the same way that somebody who only has $100 in their pocket to buy groceries today. Got it, got it. So, so then maybe you can kind of deploy the uh, forcing your shoppers to do three-digit math problems if they exceed their <laughs> budget. <laughs> Yeah, retailers need to do that. <laughs> All right. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems it's an underlying assumption um, that the total spend among shoppers, regardless of whether budget or non-budget shoppers, remains fixed. Um, so it's it's not about how much they spend in total, but how they allocate their spending throughout the trip. Is that right? That's how we looked at it in this paper, yes. A lot of that was necessary for sort of uh, experimental controls where we wanted to make sure that people were going to spend the same amount and it allowed us to completely randomize all the decisions they would make. So some people might see those expensive products first, second, last, whatever it could be. Um, we did have one study where we allowed, or two studies actually, where we allowed people to spend as much as they wanted. One was in 
my appendix, experimental grocery store, which was basically like an online grocery store that people would buy their products there. And the other was in, uh, we did a real world study with a grocery store in Atlanta where people could buy as many products as they want. And we did see that people spend a little bit more when they're non-budget shoppers than when they're budget shoppers. But all of the research and analysis we did, we looked explicitly at how much people spent relatively in every decision. Interesting. Did you, did you learn anything um, either um, intentionally or, or not intentionally, or do you have any thoughts about ways retailers can increase the total spend by, say, for example, finding ways to decrease the pain of paying throughout the store? So we didn't explicitly look at that, but there are definitely ways that we could decrease the perceived opportunity cost at different ways throughout the store. Okay. So if opportunity costs, are, we construe them as sort of the, the cost of purchasing one product relative to other products or just the cost of purchasing one product in general. So anytime we spend $10 that we, we are that we do feel a little bit of opportunity cost. But it'll be even higher if that $10 we're spending, we're choosing to buy sort of a really premium fancy tomato sauce instead of a, a $2 bottle or jar of tomato sauce that might be a little bit more val or more of a value. In that situation, we feel almost more opportunity cost. So one of the things retailers could do is try to minimize opportunity costs at a place where they're most salient. So if it's budget shoppers in the beginning of the store or non-budget shoppers in the middle of the stores, this is almost a place where we want to try to reduce the amount of variance in each decision or each cost so that the expensive option doesn't look that much more expensive than mm. the cheap. Mm, very good. Very good. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day um, where Dan Ariely was the guest and he was talking about his new book, um, the name of which I don't remember, but um, he was asked about the, um, the, the pain of paying and whether or not marketers should make it their goal to reduce their, pay, their, their pain of paying or whether consumers can um, adopt strategies where the pain of paying is is minimized. Um, Dan Dan, as a, as example, was talking about you know the best way to pay for a vacation. You could pay for it before you go, while you're on the vacation, or afterward. And and he said you know the least amount of pain will be experienced if you pay for your vacation beforehand, uh, which then prompted the question about well you know should we always be doing that? And you know Dan's answer was interesting. He's like well we don't always want the pain of paying to be small because then we're going to find ourselves spending way way too much money. Um, but, um, but I guess if you're a marketer, then, then that should be your goal. Um, because, you know, you want people to, to spend not, not too much money, but at least direct their money toward you. So if you can find ways to reduce the perceived pain of, um, of paying for your product versus your competitive products, I guess that will serve you well. I mean, I will say, yeah, but like like Dan was saying, or like everything in, in sort of that I researched, it all depends on context, right? So hmm. sometimes pain of pain could be a good thing. We're really, we're really more, more attached to things that hurt us more, right? Mm -hmm. If we shelled out, out a lot of money for something on a, a new hobby, or maybe we just prefer to think about marathon running, maybe we just spent a lot of money on a, on a new heart rate monitor or a new bike. It hurts a lot, but are we going to use it more because of that? Are we going to get more value out of it because of that? Sometimes pain of pain can lead us to positive consequences. It might not always lead to purchase. That's that's the thing to think about. Right, right, right. Good, good distinction though. And and you know, thanks for reminding us that context is always important. 
So I'm curious, with doing this work, Dan, what uh, what learning or discovery was 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 most interesting to you? Um, I think for me, it, I definitely just appreciated how we could look at things somewhat differently. So this was my first paper in my dissertation, and it's led to a whole bunch of research since then of just trying to take advantage of this notion that to not look at aggregate things and look at things piecemeal-wise, mm. and how thing that sort of illustrates or explains a whole lot more of what shoppers feel and how shoppers make decisions by looking at these different moments instead of looking at these total shopping trips. And curious, do you shop any differently now, knowing what you know? <laughs> I it's tough to say. I feel like every time I go shopping, it's like a lab experiment of one. <laughs> so I, I feel like I probably think way too much about everything I buy. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised, and, uh, and and I'm wondering though, even if you are giving it a lot of thought, whether this is one of those forces that you can avoid, even though if, even though you're aware of it. Um, kind of like an optical illusion. Like I, I know intellectually that that's an optical illusion, but I can't stop seeing it that way. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I, I and I agree. I think the biggest way it would shape people is probably the budget shoppers. It, like if you could stem off that feeling of wealth, probably one of the biggest fallacies of budgets is that we we assume we have to spend it all to maximize our budget. But if you're comfortable with spending l less at the beginning or the end, maybe we've allocated too much money to our budget, it always seems a little weird how we can be a little bit more or less sensitive at different points and be just as happy with the outcomes, meaning that sometimes you'll splurge on one item and other times you'll splurge on a different item and you're still the same amount happy, I guess. Mm. As a and, well, it is interesting that you, know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that 70% of the shoppers um, were of the non-budget variety. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's helpful for all, all of us to understand that that's essentially who we're catering to. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it is important, too. I, I know we didn't talk a lot about it in the paper because we looked at these uh, single decisions and how pain of pain builds over the experience. But we didn't see a huge aggregate difference in pain between budget shoppers and non-budget shoppers. So it's sort of interesting. You would think budget shoppers would always be the people that feel all this pain about all the shopping they would do. But if you sort of, as Dan was saying, if you prepay for it, if you're allocating money to your budget ahead of time, you don't feel that bad when you're actually spending it. So maybe this is a way that you could be a little bit more satisfied with your grocery shopping trip if you did sort of go through the steps and explicitly state your budget ahead of time. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. So, so for those of us who want to learn more about dynamic spending, are there any books or papers that, that even exist on this topic? Or are you kind of peeking under a tent um, for the first time? So hopefully I'm peeking under the tent and the tent will get bigger and bigger over yeah. the next few years. Um, but I, I think a lot of the stuff with this research, I don't sort of, I don't think about it as completely new as much as it is about taking perspectives from other research. So a lot of this stuff about cognitive resource depletion and self-control literature showed that, you know, people have more self-control at the beginning and less self-control at the end. Right. It's just sort of leaning on that or this or mental accounting research that shows that, you know, different events, if we think about them together or separately, are going to produce different outcomes. It's really trying to just, I guess, look at those literatures through this in-store shopping perspective to try to provide more understanding to what shoppers might feel for each individual decision. Got it. Um, I, so I probably should have asked this earlier, um, but as we've got these 
distinct patterns, right? So budget shoppers are going to um, overspend in the beginning, underspend in the middle, and overspend at the end. Mm-hmm. And, and the reverse is true for non-budget shoppers. What What is the magnitude of these differences? I mean, are these tiny little differences that are detectable statistically, or are these really like meaningful differences? Um, I mean, uh, I guess I, I'm not really sure how to say the magnitude of the differences. By looking at relative spending, it makes it a little bit more difficult to distinguish because it's difficult to put a complete dollar item on it. Right. Um, but the thing with grocery spending, when we look at how much money this industry deals with and how much people spend on groceries in a month, in a year, even small little differences will produce large differences year, over the month, over the week, over the millions of shoppers that do this. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah, there's, there's 30,000 grocery stores out there at least. Um, so, right, add it up and, and we're talking about big dollars. Yeah, I'm not trying to skirt the question. It's just sort of difficult to go from the research that's done in a lab study to the aggregate outside spending influence. Yeah, no, I understand. And, and I also appreciate the um, the use of the relative spending metric and, mm-hmm. and, and, and how – how, how, why you incorporate it? That makes total sense. It's it's, it's the right approach, um, but that it doesn't really translate to understanding kind of magnitudes of difference. So uh, no problem there. Um, any other work, Dan, that you're working on, um, finished or still in progress that uh, we can look forward to? Anything shopper related? Yeah. So I guess some of the other stuff I'm looking on, looking at is really trying to look at these sequential dynamics and sort of break down how other factors that or other factors that people are exposed to, we respond differently based on if we see them in isolation or as part of a larger group. So just like a lot of the spending research has been done on aggregate spending or on a single decision spending, I'm trying to look at that with promotions too and see how much of someone's promotional response is different if they just get one promotion or if it's part of a longer series of decisions where some of them have, sometimes they get five to 10 promotions in a single shopping trip versus other times they only get one or two. That's a a pretty big moderator for the effectiveness of a single discount or promotion is, is whether people are making it in isolation or whether people are exposed to a lot of different things. Well, and one thing that may actually be, um, a useful tool for you. I live near ShopRite, and so I tend to do a lot of grocery shopping there. And I noticed the other day for the first time on shopping carts, they've got this little mechanism that um, serves as a camera, and and it allows them to audit the inside of the stores and look for out-of-stocks and things like that. Obviously, they found a cost-effective way of, of having a bunch of cameras on a bunch of shopping carts, but but then essentially the shoppers end up doing the work, as they go up and down each aisle, the camera's going to pick up, you know, what's there and um, and what's not there and, and things like that. But one of the challenges of doing work like you're doing with sequential decisions is 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 knowing, you know, where they are relative to the total trip. Because um, mm-hmm. you can't just use transaction data um, that's collected at the register because you don't know, you know, the, the order in which things were purchased. But if retailers start collecting this type of video data on where things are, which could be married with how people, um, spend, then I think that can help your cause greatly because now you, you don't have to try to put that together yourself. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I think if there's something that really excites me every morning, it's the fact of the, the all the technology that's coming into traditional retailing and how you can think of retailers like Target that have their cartwheel app or all these different apps that are coming on so retailers can help interact with consumers in the store. So not only can they know where they are in the store, but possibly talk to them and say, hey, if you, you might be more price sensitive now than you were mm beginning of the trip or maybe even try to have that interact with different signage in the store, you could truly affect experiences a whole lot more than we've ever been able to do before. Great point. Yeah. So um, from from a practitioner standpoint, um, the use of these uh, in-store beacons mm-hmm. and, uh, and knowledge about where our displays are and, and incorporate interactivity to, uh, to be able to leverage things like that. That's um, wow. There's opening up a whole new world yeah. uh, for, for, for us practitioners. Well, Dan, this has been really fascinating. Again, love the paper. Um, you know, look forward to it appearing in the journal of consumer research and, uh, and I'm sure the listeners will, will, will especially appreciate this and, and especially uh, in the context of this discussion and getting the, the behind the scenes story. Uh, is there anything else that you want to add before we close anything we didn't talk about that we should? No, I think I think we really wrapped it up. I guess the, the one last thing I always like to say is that even though we talk about groceries, it's always interesting to think of all the other ways that we make 20 or 10 or five different decisions in a row and how each later decision is influenced by what we did beforehand. So Very, very good. Yeah, good ad. Thank you for that and, and, and how true. Um, well, it was great talking to you. Nice, nice to meet you over Skype and uh, – Best of luck with future marathons. Perhaps we'll uh, I'll meet at the starting line. <laughs> Likewise. All right, Dan. Take care. Okay, thanks, Bill. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics. Shoppernomics.